Welcome to the Latin Wealth Podcast, a podcast dedicated to educating the Latino community about entrepreneurship, investing, and business. Yo, yo, what's going on, Latin Wealth family? Welcome to another episode to the Latin Wealth Podcast. Very excited about today's episode because we have another phenomenal entrepreneur on the podcast today. A little bit about our guest. He is the co-founder of Chicky Chicky Boom Boom, which is a food and beverage company. And he, he's drinking the product as we're speaking right now. We'll get more into it. <laughs> product placement. Um, he's also been in the fashion industry for many, many years, which helping launching some massive brands such as Young and Reckless, Young and Reckless Manello Club, New Republic, and a couple other big ones that we'll jump into. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this conversation. We're going to definitely dive into his story, um, all his entrepreneurial uh, experience and whatnot. Welcome to the podcast, Andres. How are you doing today, bro? I'm great. Great. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, you know, I think I was listening to one of your other episodes, and I think you said something like, you've always been an entrepreneur, I think, straight out of uh, college. Uh, you never really had a, a corporate job, a regular job. Have you ever thought, uh, been curious about a different career path or like working a corporate job or something like that? Or has that ever interested you? And you're just like, no, nah, I've always. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think when I, I interned in college, I, at the time, I thought I wanted to go into inter entertainment. So okay. I had some, uh, some opportunities to intern at Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox and different departments from music to film um and they were cool you know and i learned a lot but i didn't re really like the structure and i was just like damn it's gonna take me like 20 to 25 years to get to the top you know that that's a pretty long road because i'd seen you know i'd read about all like the ceos yeah. and these guys were in their 50s 60s um very rarely in their 40s and you know I, I saw their trajectories and it was like they worked and worked and worked and i'm like dude i didn't you know really want to go down that path and yeah i uh you know i had great bosses but i just didn't like being told what to do so you know i knew yeah. i had to strike off on my own and uh do my own yeah. thing i'm curious were you were you uh you you weren't officially an employee but were you a hard worker back then or were you always like i kind of want to do my own thing um what type of worker were you back then yeah employee. i mean i think yeah. yeah when i was an employee you know i was always very curious and Mm -hmm. I wanted just to learn and I love to learn and just be like a sponge. So, you know, I think I was pretty, you know, my only uh, fault, not my only, I, I mean, I have many faults, but like one of my employee faults that I had is I think I was like always a little late. I wasn't like oh. tragically late. I was like five to 15 minutes late mm -hmm. on average. Um, but be, but I would stay an hour, two hour, three hour extra as yeah. an intern just because I wanted to learn like there were some days where i would stay till 8 9 10 p.m just because i was so hungry so you know i think you know for for me you know and eventually when i was graduating i was offered a full-time job but i was just like dude there's no way i'm gonna do this uh yeah. but yeah just the curiosity has always been there you know yeah absolutely don't the only reason why i ask that is because i've heard people say like if you're a terrible employee you're probably gonna be a great entrepreneur but then I've also heard like, hey, if you're a terrible employee, what makes you think you can be a good entrepreneur, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it depends on like what yeah. your faults are. You yeah. know, like being late, sure. It's always good to be like on time or a little early, mm -hmm. like without a doubt. Uh, you know, I don't want to blame me being Latino <laughs> and us being always late as a culture. Right, right, but, right. you know, a, a, I think apart from that, I was always very, very curious. I always had... You know, I brought yeah. different ideas to the table. That's why I was always allowed to kind of sit in the rooms with like the VPs and stuff like that, where as an intern, a lot of people didn't have that kind of access. Um, and I was pretty fortunate that I had some people that believed in my ability. Uh, so, you know, I think being curious is always super important because especially at a young age, like don't be afraid to ask questions. So I think like, you know, the the, the point back of like, you know, because I've had now through my years, I've had employees that have, call it, been, say, good and maybe not the best employees, and then gone and tried to do their own thing. 
you know, I think based on, from my recollection, the ones with the most success are the ones that not necessarily were the best employees, but like they always tried and they put effort and they asked questions and they were curious um, and they put in the extra hours. So, you know, I think that if you have those characteristics, say like a bad employee doesn't mean that you question things. That's just you being curious or maybe you, you having a different idea, you know, of the way it should be done because your perspective may be unique to the circumstance. Right. So I think it just depends how you see it. You know, I always try to view things from a positive manner. So like it depends, it's all in like the light of the beholder, right? If your Mm -hmm. boss is like, if they're a certain way and they're a corporate person and you have an entrepreneurial spirit, they're going to probably find something that's negative to classify you as like a bad employee. But if like me as an entrepreneur, I've always been able to tell like who are the, like the go-getters, the self-starters, that person one day is going to be very successful, you know? And I've had that feeling with certain people, nothing wrong with, Mm -hmm. if you're not that either, maybe, you know, we, we all need great superstar employees. Not everyone can be, the founder, visionary, blah, 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 you know, because um, they can do things better than I can in some in some cir- circumstances, you know. Yeah. So I guess it just depends on the person and like who is the boss, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll get into I'm curious of like, you know, where this positive mindset comes from and this uh, entrepreneurial spirit comes from. But how do you deal with maybe you having a superstar employee and they end up wanting to leave the company? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, whenever I've had that, I mean, uh, most of the times it's been because they've wanted to pursue something maybe bigger. And, you know, I always encourage that because at the end of the day, especially with creative people, you can't push them too hard because creative people need refreshing and new and new beginnings. You know, it's, 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 it's the journey of creativity. So I fully support it. So most of the times I haven't really pushed like hey yo stay on board blah 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 because when you're mentally checked out of something sometimes you're just mentally checked out of something and that goes to towards an entrepreneur too you know sometimes there's moments in your career where you're just like over it because maybe you've mm-hmm. either put in so much work it didn't yeah. realize the way that you expected and at some point you have to call it a loss and be able to like progress to your next thing not mm-hmm. necessarily call it a loss per se but like cool that was the end of that chapter I'm moving on to the next chapter, you know, love that. So where did this walk us through, walk us through your background and you growing up, where did this positive mindset come from and where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm born and raised in LA. My family's Mm -hmm. from Ecuador. I come from divorced parents. Um, They divorced when I was two. So, you know, I grew up uh, being raised by my mom, my two aunts and my grandma and we're that side of the family, they're half Latin, half Lebanese. So you can, <laughs> the tension was hot always, you know, <laughs> uh, a lot of, you know, they only spoke Spanish at home. Um, so, you know, I learned a lot just from kind of being in that environment. Mm-hmm. My father was an entrepreneur his whole life. And, you know, I would see him on the weekends till the age of 10 or so. Uh, so I always saw kind of how he you know, wine, dine, razzle, dazzled. And I always thought it was really cool. And then just like, you know, growing up, I, you know, had access. I mean, this is back in the 80s, right? Like TV was pretty much your only medium of information. And I would just love watching like 60 Minutes in 2020 when it was like about the entrepreneur, you know? So, you know, I was just very curious and I was fortunate enough to go, my mother always put education as like the number one priority. So even though, you know, when my father left the United States, when I was nine or 10, we didn't have uh, the means that we used to have when he was around. And, you know, but my mother always put education and told me like, the only equalizer in life is education. And, you know, she made it very poignant that I needed to study. And it was like ingrained from my grandma to my aunts that like, I needed to do well in school, because if I didn't do well in school, I wasn't allowed to, I don't know, go on vacation or play with my friends or play video games or whatever, whatever, right. So like, you know, with that in mind, I, you know, 
was exposed to private schooling my entire life. And, you know, I was, I was around a lot of people that had better means than me. And I always like aspired like shit, you know, they have an amazing lifestyle, not like money defines success or, or happiness, but it allows you to do a lot of cool things that you may not do if you don't have the means. Right. So with that, I always was exposed, you know, to these other people that, you know, were successful and that had more means. And I always use that, use my ambition Mm -hmm. and those, you know, those kind of experiences and the, and the wonderful people that I met on my journey as inspiration slash fuel to be able to keep progressing to something greater, you know, and I always, I always thought big, you know, sometimes it's good and bad to think big, big, because, you know, my problem, I think sometimes in my life is I've only thought like too big, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to understand that getting to that big moment, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you walking to China, good Mm -hmm. luck getting there. There's an ocean in between, you know, like figure it out, bro. Uh, So in that kind of mindset, you know, uh, you know, I think I've learned through the years, like, okay, great. Like, you know, having the vision is important because if you want to build something big and convince people to work with you and convince investors to invest in you, and then ultimately convince your customers and your end consumers to, to buy your products, you, you have to show a big vision and a big path. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but understanding that like the road to get there you know, it's going to be complicated and it's going to be filled with more failures and success. But if you're able to weather the storm, you know, that's all that matters. So I'm curious with you being a big thinker, big vision, you know what I'm saying? You see the top of the mountain type of person. Do you think if you would have known the steps to get to the mountain, to get to your vision, to get to your goals, you think you would have still went through the process, right? Because Yeah. For, would, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, I was going to say because no, no. there's, there's, like you said, there's a lot of trials, there's a lot of tri- tribulation, and a part of maybe succeeding to get to that top of the mountain is you being naive enough to not even know what's next, right? Because for some people, if they did know the steps, they did know what it take, it would scare a lot of people off. Like I got to go yeah. through all, I got to walk across the ocean to get to China. I'm not doing that. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you almost like didn't know the steps, you just take it one step at a time. Right. Yeah, no, totally. I think what's, you know, I think the difference between say myself as an entrepreneur and a lot of other entrepreneurs that whether or not like every journey is different, but I would say that maybe my thing that, you know, and I don't like uh, regret anything, but maybe like having a little bit of experience in that field would have been key, even if it's two years of working at it, because it's way cheaper to make mistakes on someone else's dime than on your dime. You know? So I think that, you know, despite whatever success I've, I've accomplished, it took a little bit longer than it may have some other people that I'm friends with say in the fashion business and whatnot, because, you know, they work two to 10 years somewhere and then when they were in their 30s, then they launched their idea. And but they had all this experience of yeah. learning on someone else's dime. I've only let, learned on my dime. Um, and I've never been exposed, yeah. you know, to learning something on someone else's dime and then doing it on my own. Right. right. So I think, you know, I think that that's the only caveat. So, mm-hmm. you know, in theory, to a certain extent, if I were to start it, something again, if say if I worked in that field for like even if it's just one to two years, I will know a, a ton more than going into something so naive and blind, you know. Um, you know, so I think like that's the way I see it. Bear in mind, if I knew the steps, obviously, you know, I think the only 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 difference is I would make less mistakes, mm. make it would cost me less money, and I would do it in a faster amount of time because now I know what it takes to be successful in one industry you know, what are the do's and the don'ts? And then, you know, now that I made this transition into a new industry, um, you know, I started from scratch. I didn't know anyone. Mm. So it was like going from a certain level in fashion to kind of starting all, all anew and uh, sure domain expertise only applies to a certain extent, you know? Uh, so, you know, I think that 
whatever. My journey is my journey. I don't know how to change it. You know, like I can only try my best. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's important is to, to just to understand or just to be, just to have the awareness to know if you actually enjoy your journey, if you're enjoying the process, right? Like you say, your journey is your journey and that's perfectly fine as long as you're enjoying it, right? As long as you're going through the yeah. process, right? So, um, but I'm curious. So you got introduced to the fashion industry and you were in the in industry for about 19, 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you help launch over 10 brands. And these aren't just like little brands. These are very successful brands. Um, wh what got you into the fashion industry? And yeah, talk to us about, you know, you launched five, four, the five, four group, you know, talk to us about that process as, as well. Yeah. So like, I always was pretty obsessed with clothing since I was a kid, probably since I was like four years old. And, you know, a lot of my friends or parents would pick out their clothes. I would pick out my own clothes. I would go to the mall with my mom. I would tell her yes to this, no to that, you know? And, uh, yeah, as I got into high school and obviously I was able to make my own decisions, um, we had a uniform, but it was very loose. It was just like collar shirt and khakis. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, can I get the freshest collar shirt and khakis? You know, so my, my mom only allowed me to shop at TJ Maxx and Marshall and Ross. So, but I, I would pick out the hot Tommy, Polo, Nautica. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to put together my fresh. So like, you know, as I progressed into college, um, you know, at that time, I thought I wanted to go into entertainment. And then you know, through that journey, I was able to meet some people that were pretty powerful in entertainment. Whenever I had like a school project, I went to USC in LA and um, I I thought I wanted to be a talent agent. Mm -hmm. And I was able to meet like four very powerful people in the agency world that were like at the top of their field. Mm -hmm. um, that for like an intern, it was like kind of impossible to get these meetings, but I was able to, you know, the gift of the gab, get... Yeah the meeting, yeah. you know, and these are ultra successful people that manage the careers of the most famous people in the world. Mm. And one of them asked me like, do you like doing this? Do you like doing that? Do and I told him, no, no, no. And he said, then you are not going to make a good agent, you know? Mm. And I was just like, yeah. And then I walked out of that meeting. I was like, fuck that. I never <laughs> want to be like in those scenarios yeah, that yeah. they told me, you know, I want to be a hundred percent control of my destiny as opposed to it being reliant on if talent liked it or not, or if that morning they felt good or bad, you know? So anyway, so in that same vein, um, you know, I think, uh, sorry, what was the, the question again? I'm going no, up no, on like no, a you're tangent. Good. So, um, yeah, you, you're, you're walking us through the process of how you got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, my bad. So then like the summer of 21, 21, Jesus, 2001, I was 20 years old, 20, 21 years old. Uh, I was in New York and I was, uh, I walked into the store called H&M and it was like the mm. first one in America or the first two or three in America on Fifth Ave. Really? And I bought like, I spent like 800 bucks. The one that's still there? Yeah, it's probably still Times there. Square? No, Fifth Ave somewhere. I, Fifth, I think more up, Ave, got you. upper east side, like probably like in the 50s. That's crazy. Um, so anyway, so like, I went in there, I spent like, I don't know, seven, 800 bucks. And I was with my friend and he bought like a jacket. And uh, I was just like, damn, the clothes are hot. Like, you know, <laughs> it looked like the things that were like on runway, but cheaper. Mm. And up, up to that point, Americans didn't really have exposure to fast fashion. It was more like classic clothing mm. done in a cheaper manner. Right. But trend wasn't so irrelevant. Yeah. You know, and I would always like go online on the internet. This was like when the internet wasn't as good, right? And kind of see like the European and the Japanese fashion. And I, mm -hmm. I saw those glimpses, glimpses at H&M. And then I needed to write a school project. Uh, I, I was in, now in the entrepreneur program my senior year at USC. And I decided to write a concept around a fashion, fast fashion retailer um, with with my friend and, and co-founder. Mm -hmm. um, and then... You know, we were like, dude, this is gonna be impossible to launch a retail store. Like, we we don't know how to source or anything. Let's launch a brand. It's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So then, like, we 
<laughs> looked in like the yellow pages when the yellow pages were of relevancy. Yeah. Like the big yellow books, yeah. you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we just were like, Hey, let's find like, we, we didn't even know what screen printing was. Uh, we thought crazy. it was like t-shirt printing. So I just like looked yeah. in the t-shirt section, you know, cause you couldn't Google these things. Like now everyone's a designer and a streetwear designer entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Dude, yeah, but back then you need on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, back then the ecosystem was tight. The internet wasn't as good, so it was like kind of very challenging to figure oh, yeah. this out. That's why there were so few brands back then. You know, to put it in perspective, if say back then there was like ten thousand brands, today there's probably a million brands. So mm-hmm. just to understand like the you know the difference back then and the access to information was close to impossible. You know, right. so you know whatever we launched, we got into like some stores in LA. I used to throw parties in college. Um, so we launched like a launch party, had 2000 people there. This is off of like a flyer and word of mm-hmm. mouth. And I didn't even know they had SMS back then. I was like on two-way pagers, like the Motorola two-way <laughs> page me, you know? And, uh, wow. you know, just texting people. When I had 2000 people show up, I'm like, damn, it's fucking hot. And then <laughs> we, we, we got into like, I don't know, 10 accounts by graduation, got in like seven magazines. This one being in a physical magazine was of relevancy. It was better to be in a magazine then than online. You know, go wow. figure. So then, uh, you know, graduated and then my co-founder and I were like, hey, what do we do? Like, do we get a job or do, do we go like do this? So we maxed out credit cards, went to a trade show, you know, d- failed, kept failing, kept failing. But we built like a hype and like a little buzz. And then we ended up... Um, <laughs> had like a breakout year by like call it 2005 mm-hmm. uh, we started to make clothing and i went to peru for like two mm-hmm. weeks to like make like soft pima cotton hoodies and blah 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 wow. ended up like finally getting some momentum got an investor and then like that next year like the company blew up went from call it a few hundred grand in sales to like you know six million like in one year so we were like yeah yeah you know we're hot and then i learned how to make jeans so we got very good at making jeans and, you know, I was in Europe at a show, like I didn't even know the show exists anymore called Bread and Butter. It was like this hot European fashion trade show of brands. And I noticed this trend that like all the dudes were wearing like slim jeans mm-hmm. and I thought it was cool. And in America, it was like boot cut and relaxed mm-hmm. and straight leg at most. Straight leg was like the tightest jean, but it was still kind of baggy, right? Yeah. And I always was like, I like sneakers, you know, and I was just like baggy jeans make cover your sneakers. So it doesn't show the shoe. So like one day I decided to take, you know, we had only two styles, like a straight leg and a relaxed. And I took the relaxed and I literally didn't tell anyone. I just did whatever Mm -hmm. I wanted. A good and bad idea. You know, Mm -hmm. I, it was a 19 inch leg opening. Bear in mind in like the streetwear and like men's street fashion market at the time. The common leg opening was like 20 to 22, literally like that mm-hmm. big. Yep, it's, yep. it's, it's asinine to think, right? Yeah. And I took it, ours was 19, so it was already progressive. I took it down to like a 17 and mm-hmm. we had like furious retailers. What are you doing? My co-founder is like, dude, they're all like yelling at me because he's the one that led the sales. And I was just like, dude, just trust me. Like, just put the thing on the floor. Like, it's about the sneaker. This is going to glorify the sneaker. That's what dudes that wear streetwear want. Because if anything, a sneaker is the most relevant talking point of their outfit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Boom. We all of a sudden became like the hottest selling brand in wow. denim in a lot of these stores, you know. Um, and then, you know, we then created multiple styles. And we were one of the first, if not the first men's fashion brand that did like jeans with stretch for like the mm-hmm. like the streetwear market, you know. What, what and this was, was like a brand? two by four. And this is in 2007, you know, like 16 years ago, men wearing stretch jeans is like That's also true. insane with small. And then we, we, we progressed the leg openings down to like 15, 14 inches, you know, which today is kind of big, you know, cause dudes are wearing jeans that are like, mm-hmm. if they're slim jeans, you're thinking more like a 12 to like a 14, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, in that, so we, you know, so we achieved success and the recession hit, um, in 08, we launched another brand called Young and Reckless at the time. Mm-hmm. We were fortunate enough to meet um, this dude named Drama that was on an MTV show called Rob Dyrdek uh, Fantasy Factory. And he wanted to launch a show, uh, or sorry, yeah. a brand on yeah. the show. 
so my partner D and I got together and we 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 basically like like shotgun this brand produced. I mean, it was only like t-shirts and stuff, but it was like the number one most Googled term in North uh-huh. America on a date that like it came out, like uh-huh. on air on MTV. So we uh-huh. saw like the power of celebrity and collaboration uh-huh. and media and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, in that whole journey, uh, you know, a few years pr- progressed. Um, I was at the mall and uh, there was a, uh, like a, like a, what do you call it? Like a meet and greet for this girl that wasn't that famous at the time, but I knew her forever mm-hmm. called Kim Kardashian, right? So she's my age and she went to my sister's school, right? And she was dating Reggie Bush at the time. She went to school called Marymount. I went to school called Lo- Loyola. And I had mm-hmm. met her a few times, but wasn't, you know, was like, hey, what's up? Like whatever. But she was very well known because her dad was Bob Kardashian, was mm-hmm. OJ's attorney and yeah, his, yeah. his his friend, right? That's what she was famous for, like prior to her being famous for what she is now, right? right At right. least in the LA scene, everyone knew who she was. So we, we were talking to her and um, Bob Shapiro, which was OJ's lawyer, and I was friends with his kids. And he, he was telling us about this concept called shoe dazzle and how, you know, they use the power of the celebrity being Kim mm-hmm. in this case. And females were subscribing the shoes and it was like 39 bucks a month or something. And they had a, a pop-up, a meet and greet at the mall at Century City at the Westfield. Mm-hmm. And we had a pop-up store right around their pop-up. And we were just talking and I think they needed to take her into our store because the security needed, because the line was long. So right, they needed right. to put her somewhere safe. So then that's when we chatted with her and she was dating Reggie Bush at the time. And Reggie went to SC and she would buy clothing for Reggie or her -hmm. assistant online because we were very popular with the USC players. Right. So Mm -hmm. all these dots are connecting. Right. right? But more more importantly, she told us this idea of shoot dazzle and it was popping. And I was like, wow, that's like pretty interesting. Like, like I think the difference for if you apply this to men is that men don't want to shop. They don't care to shop, at, at least like the average dude, you know? Right, right, they right. want it kind of easy. They they want it curated and the bigger mm-hmm. opportunities to do something that's a bit more price sensitive. So then we launched this concept called the 5-4 Club, mm-hmm. uh, like May 7, 2012. Yeah, 2012. Shit, that's like 10 and a half years ago. It's almost 11 now. So we launched that. And then that thing, like the day one, we had like 1,200 members. We're like, damn, there's mm-hmm. obviously a demand. Uh, my um my so, co-founder was able to get a place on television yeah. and we got like this crazy skyrocket that first day and then from then it kind of like exploded so yeah and then throughout time they're like call it over the next five years we launched about you know, six to eight more brands i forget the number some were successful some failed yeah. um but yeah so wow that's i mean i can see here and listen to you talk about fashion <laughs> probably for a couple hours because it's just really interesting to see how far it's came and you um just being innovative and trying new things right so the the five four brand that you launched you was it like you said it was a, a subscription brand so what how how did that work back then like you just subscribe and um you get sent different products like a package maybe you pick out like what your style is it was it something like that? Yeah, yeah. It was like a quiz. Okay. Like, again, we kept it yeah, simple. Okay. Yeah. We yeah. we we kept it simple because guys didn't want to be too overburdened with too many questions right. that were more subjective, right? So most of the questions were objective, like height, waist, mm-hmm. shoe size, uh, uh, top size, whatever, blah, blah blah. And then we asked questions like, "Do you like like what fit do you like in your denim? What top do you like? What uh, style are you like? Classic, forward, or mm-hmm. casual? You know." Um, so, you know, based on that, we were able to build these like profiles and then curate a package of like two to three items a month. Um, and obviously the concept tweaked over time, but that was like, I don't know, 90% of the, of what we did day one hasn't really changed Mm -hmm. to this day. Um, and yeah, and that's what basically the idea, how the idea evolved, you know, and, um, no, it's a really yeah. interesting it's a really interesting business model like i'm just thinking i think that would i think it would definitely work nowadays like that's something that could the, the yeah model, i mean yeah yeah the business exists to this still to to this day yeah. um you know i think the difference between say 
now and then is that now fashion is more i feel the pandemic changed the behavior of people where mm -hmm. where they didn't they started to value things and maintain things more mm -hmm. so maybe the urge of like consumer spending isn't as there anymore at least on fashion because at least for like the men's sector because you didn't really use many new clothes for like a year and a half there was not a need maybe some sweatpants and some like comfortable slippers but be but beyond that there wasn't this need to like you know buy the new whatever yeah. comme de garçon or the new you know supreme this or that or whatever right so you know i think that behaviors change um and there, there's just a lot more options now that exist a lot of it is because you know there's a lot more brands in the marketplace so mm -hmm. if you think that something cool or something or like merch now is hot back then merch wasn't really a thing like meaning company merch artist merch mm -hmm. merch in general you know a lot of merch you bought was more like old rock vintage tees you know mm -hmm. now merch itself is like a category that's billions of dollars yeah. you know whether it's again music company influencer etc cetera, etc cetera. so now there there's just a lot more disposable income options where you could like you know to spend your your cash that's yeah. more of like an impulsive buy maybe tied into a moment or an event or like you know some sort of influencer or you know something yeah. of that sort so i'm curious so over the years of launching all those brands did you kind of develop a, a system where you knew worked for you guys or was every single brand different like what you did what young and yeah what you know what I'm saying? Every brand is different. And I think that the failure was that we uh, try to apply a system and the oh. system failed when we try to use the same formula. I think the biggest thing is that you need to do as a fashion entrepreneur, and it's irrelevant to this day, is where is the opportunity? Categorically, what is missing? What's the price sensitivity of the um, of the audience? Um, is there some sort of innovation or function that your product has that doesn't exist right now? And why do men need it? Is it something that's easy to communicate? Is it visually something different? Um, uh, you know, are you able, you know, most brands now, the success of a brand today is driven by direct to consumer. Is it mm -hmm. something where you have the margin to be able to ship, right? Can you achieve a 75 point margin and up? Because remember, you have to ship the product and then you also have to probably buy ads against it. So your ROAS, uh, your return on ad spend needs to be at a certain multiple for you to say your cost of goods sold, your shipping cost and your advertising cost. Mm -hmm. And if all those match and you still net 30%, great, you're in, you're in damn good shape, you know? But if those don't add up and you're either netting under 10%, you know, or you're breaking even or you're losing, then it's probably a bad idea, yeah. you know? So you need to think mm -hmm. about that. And also like, who's that that's more like the optics and the, and the objectivity yeah. of the brand from a subjectivity, your the success of your brand. Again, in my opinion, needs to tie back into some sort of community. Like mm -hmm. who is your audience? How that's can good. you, you know, the advertising, your ROAS, that the, the difference between your ROAS being maybe a 2X to like a 8X, maybe because you have an engaging platform or you've connected with a community that's so tight and easy to, 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 to talk to, you know, yeah. is it, is it an emotion that they're clinging to your brand to? Is it, I don't know, is it an, like an ethnic thing? Is it tied mm -hmm. in? Like, for instance, like I see a lot of success in beauty brands now that they're being tied into like like a race right mm -hmm. so this product works well for the latin community because yeah. their hair quality is a certain thing that mm -hmm. this ingredient you know works with that or or the african-american community etc cetera, etc cetera. that makes your advertising easier right because then your scope of who you're targeting is a little bit more narrow, narrow so it helps yeah. with your communications helps with your your ad creative, your ad creative, your your audience segmentation, your communication, your your verbal things that you write. Like, what is that community going to engage with? What do I say? Who are the collaborators? What are the models that I need to use? 
are they tall? Are they short? Are they skinny? Are they medium? Are they bigger? Mm-hmm. Whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, so like I'm having a really good understanding mm-hmm. of what your end consumer is and then how you're going to communicate to them and what is the emotion that you are going to strike with that consumer is like mm-hmm. the hardest part because everything else you can figure mm-hmm. out like on the internet, you mm-hmm. know, or you can ask or you can change your pricing to be a little bit higher to achieve the margins. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the beauty of that today versus call it 20 years ago, those pillars may not have existed in such a quantitative manner. Now you can kind of quantify everything, you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot more more outlets to figure out, you know, like mm-hmm. I believe online fashion is fucked in terms mm-hmm. of like, you can't have a, a really big scalable concept. However, the caveat to that is if you can tie into a community where you can mm-hmm. build an emotional relationship to them, and that community is really large, then that is how you can build like a billion dollar brand, you know? Mm-hmm. But again, th- those are few and far between because when you start doing it well, someone's going to copy you, you know? So like, what is the relationship that you have with that end consumer? That's like the most important thing, in my opinion. Man, that was powerful. So have you ever thought about writing a book, <laughs> a, a fashion book? Uh. I've thought about it, but um, I don't know. I'm kind <laughs> you know, of like you. You are I'm kind of over a, it. He said, "I'm over it." You just have such, such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that that category. It's almost crazy to think about, like, what even made you want to transition. I think is the next question to ask from yeah. fashion into food and beverage. Was it like you just mentioned? You're kind of over it. Were you just burnt out? Were you just ready for a new challenge? What was it that made you switch? That's yeah. I think like. Back then in 2017, when we had our biggest year, I didn't see how this thing can evolve into something like a billion dollar idea, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not about the money, but like, it's about the impact and it's about the reach and it's about like, it's about innovation. So if you don't see, or at least for me, if I don't see, like I could be doing $10 million or $5 million in sales and be really happy if I saw this like big picture that I'm like, I see me getting there, right? Mm. The way that the business changed of it going all direct to consumer and so many options. And I mean, it's great because now there's like a bigger ecosystem of of creative thinkers in it. The challenge is that the pot didn't necessarily get bigger. It just got more Mm. fragmented, right? Mm. And since fashion is so disposable and it's a luxury item, like meaning you don't need to buy another t-shirt. It's a desire. It's a want like, oh yeah, that, whatever, like that Comme de Garceau or that Supreme shirt, that's hot. But do you really need it? Probably not. Cause you probably got like, you know, yeah. like I have like 7,800 pairs of shoes. Do I need to buy another pair of shoes? Probably not like ever. Right. But like, so in that vein, like I didn't see that one that is like, how can it create, how can becoming bigger create more impact? And I didn't mm-hmm. see the ability to become bigger. One, two, tied into into impact. How can I impact? How can I create something that is impactful on the world from a positive perspective? How can I integrate climate change into Mm -hmm. what I'm doing? You know, I started reading a lot about the environment and sustainability and like seeing like, what is my role in all this? You know, Mm -hmm. like, how can I create impact? Our fashion company wasn't necessarily built to be a eco-friendly brand because sure, they're great ideas, but unless you're like DNA and your infrastructure is built from day one to the material level and everyone being on board from your investors to C-suite and blah, 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 even the way that you hire like people that all share that same vision, it's difficult to, ch- to turn a ship and say like, hey, we're going to do all these things. And then also the availability and the ease of your raw materials being accessible to create environmentally friendly fashion-based products. It's traditionally been more expensive. Mm -hmm. So when you're building, when you're working in a cost sensitive market, because our price point was more like mid tier, you know, going up 10 to 15% in cost is like, it's a big effect on your bottom line, you know? So it may not, your consumer may not, 
reward mm-hmm. you with them, with their desire to pay more for that item. Right. Yeah. So I think that that was a part of the problem. So I started to look and see like, where can I create impact? And another thing that I was inspired for is like, how can I impact my culture? And mm. how can I create something cool that my Latino people can aspire mm-hmm. to that they can it. see something that like represents the culture, you know? So those are like the two biggest things that to me, like culture and, and impact from like a sustainability perspective that really drove me. And I started to look and see and see like, where can I use my domain expertise from doing all this stuff in fashion and apply it to something else? Okay. It's probably gonna be some sort of a consumer product. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I started seeing like, What is something that you need to be doing every day? You need to eat every day, right? Mm. You need to eat, what, three to four meals a day, drink six to eight times a day. Sure, it's mainly water, but like, cool. So then that's where like my head naturally went to. And being a byproduct of like, you know, like I always say, I speak three fluent languages, English, Spanish, and Spanglish. And, (laughs) you know, being heavily influenced, um, by rap and hip hop in the nineties and two thousands. And a a lot of my brands in the fashion space, like we did a lot of collaborations Mm -hmm. with personalities in those spaces. And a lot of our say brand marketing success was attributable to collaborations with rappers and all that stuff. You know, I naturally saw like this, like white space where I'm like, dude, reggaeton is going to be the new hip hop and Latin culture is becoming pop culture. And the like based on the the statistics like 22 percent of millennials are latin 26 percent of gen z is latin 30 percent of teenagers are latin i'm like dude these numbers are like crazy right and there isn't and there's this first generation latino latino audience in the united states that identifies as like a 200 percent or like 100 percent latin 100 percent american and i'm like i'm that Right. Mm -hmm. Like I feel that and I don't feel like there's products that represent me, but now there's like culturally iconic figures that kind of look like me in the sense, like look and talk like me, like, right. Like I'm seeing someone rapping in Spanish. That's like dope and they're dressed dope. And like, I'm not saying they look like me per se, but like I identify Mm -hmm. meaning like, Oh, I kind of, I'm the same, you know, culture right so that was like transformational where now like that started to become the the new cool and i said like dude in the next like five to ten years reggaeton is going to be the biggest movement that Mm -hmm. we're going to see this is like in 2016 i started seeing this um that is going to impact the culture and it's going to be cross-cultural right because latin culture is very fun it's it's exciting it's very inclusive and just in general, like if you live in a big city in America, you're probably impacted by Latin culture directly or, or indirectly, right? Because we're in all the big metros, you know, and we love to, uh, we, we love to breed. So, you know, your Latin homie is probably a family of three to five kids versus your non-Latin, you know, was it a little more responsible and they're like one to two kids, right? So then you're, you're starting to see that and dude, all of a sudden, like maybe 50% of your friends are Latin. Yeah. in like the big cities right so like i'm starting to see that there's this there's this this missing gap in the mm. food and beverage space of like forward thinking cool 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 vibes like uh zeitgeisty irreverent kind of brand way of thinking that you saw heavily in fashion and streetwear and all that stuff that i had done personally and had done like hundreds of collabs in my lifetime and I'm like, dude, this is like going to be the opportunity in this space, you know? And I'd seen it specifically in food and beverage, particularly in beverage, in like vitamin water with hip hop, mm-hmm. Celsius with hip hop, yeah. buy with pop music. And yeah. at the time, there was this new brand popping up in like 2018, 19 called Liquid Death. And they mm-hmm. were doing it more in like the punk rock metal kind of space. Where I'm like, dude, the, these guys are like, they're hitting the subculture yeah. in such a hard way that's so dope that Crazy. it's touching the emotion of that consumer. I'm like, yo, again, the Latino, like, they want that. They're dying for, like, dying, dying, right? And no one's giving it to them, 
And the only thing that, if anything, they're being given is the natural granola yoga mom vibe, but with a little Latinidad. That is not like, sure, maybe that identifies with some people, but like, give me reggaeton. Give me that shit that like we over-index, you know? Give me the thing that we listen to eight to 10 hours a day. Like, can can the communication be centric around that? I mean, I listen to reggaeton like eight to 10 hours a day. Mm. I figure a lot of my friends do, which they do, right? So, like, you know, I was, like, 0.005% top listeners of Bad Bunny last year. And I play, like, 40,000 minutes on Spotify at Bad Bunny. I'm thinking, I'm like, yo, there's a lot of people like me that identify with this, like, obsession with this. And then all my friends that I talk to, at least the majority of my Latin friends, reggaeton is, like, 80, 90% of, of their Spotify or their Apple Music, you know? So I was just like, dude, this is just like a glaring opportunity. So then, you know, that's when I decided like, yo, I got to go into this. This is this is the way where I'm going to be able to breed like culture, yeah. community, sustainability, social impact, health, wellness, and more importantly, like reggaeton mm-hmm. as like, as the like, as, as like the, as the, the you know, amplifier. as the plate, yeah, as the, the amplifier plate. slash plate of all these ingredients, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's how I landed on Chicky Chicky Boom Boom. So, so we'll, we'll jump into the ingredients, like what goes into the bottle and everything, but I'm just sitting here and we, we have like, I think about 10 more minutes. So I want to give you time to, to dive into that, but I'm sitting here like really inspired by how you analyze what our people need or what people need, right? You're asking me yeah. really insightful questions. Like, okay, what, what do you said? What do people need that people need to eat and drink? Okay. That's where my mind went. How many times do people drink a day? What are they drinking? Right. What's available to our community. So I, I'm really inspired by the questions that you're asking to create a product because most people, they go out and they create what they think people need. They don't ask the questions of what the consumer is looking for. What's already out there. They just kind of put out. I think this is what they need. And sometimes it works, but I love the fact that you're taking a step back and saying, okay, you know, what are our basic necessities? And you're asking those, again, those very insightful questions to figure out what it is that you're supposed to create. Um, man, that's just, to me, that's powerful. That if anybody's listening, I hope you guys are taking notes on that because yeah, that's, that's powerful. But yeah, I think us, like, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, just to add to your point there, before we go into the next question, I think the, the probably the single most important factor that I saw in, in, in all this is that the culture was dying to own something that mm-hmm. they can say is theirs. Mm-hmm. That's the most, like, for instance, when you go to Bad Bunny concert, you are proud that he's Latino. And if you go with your non-Latino friends, which I have to Bad Bunny, they're just like, fuck, mm-hmm. this guy is like insane. Mm-hmm. You guys are like the emotion that you see I don't have that same emotion at like, at a, like Drake is yeah. one of my favorite artists, you know, shout out to Champagne Poppy, but like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't have that same emotional feeling yeah, that, that I have, like, like I have at, at a Bad Bunny or like a J Balvin show, right? Because they are pushing culture. And in that same mm-hmm. vein, I want Latinos, Latinas to feel like this is ours, mm-hmm. you know, this is representative of the culture like don't stereotype me and think Mm -hmm. that latinos want 55 gram of sugar in a juice Mm -hmm. you know or that we need some like i don't know some cheesy jingle that is like the abuela jingle that like that is what represents you you know like we are are the new generation the gen zers and millennials like we are defining what the new latino is you know so like, I think that that's important and, you know, you need to be proud. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is for the culture, you yeah. know? And that's what I felt was what was missing, you know? Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. So go ahead and talk to us about what's in there, what's in the drink, what inspired you? Like talk to us about the drink in itself and what inspired you to make it. Yeah. So like in like the fall of 2018, I went to Ecuador, uh, you know, I hadn't been in 14 years. I was like, on this journey, like kind of Indiana Jonesing it, looking for like this product. And then, you know, I don't know if you know much about Ecuador. It's a very small country population, mm-hmm. probably 18, 19 million people. 
but you know, geographically, it's the located in the middle of the world. And what is Ecuador the best at? Because being a small country, it's hard to be number one in in anything, right? Mm-hmm. But when you really look and deep dive into it, Ecuador is the most biodiverse and green country on earth by size, right? Mm-hmm. So with climate change and the environment and sustainability becoming so relevant and specifically influential in this brand, I'm like, yo, that is like how we can, you know, that is our our, our diamond, right? So cool. I started to explore food and beverage products that were there, that were authentic, that were functional, that had like a deep history, but that I felt were crossover to the global consumer. Mm-hmm. I met my co-founder around that time named Juan and he, we shared a lot of the same values and, you know, he started telling me about this beverage and, you know, he also believed that like Latin should not be stereotyped to sugary drinks and this, that, and the mm-hmm. other. And he started telling me about this, like this La Santa that, that mm-hmm. they call in the South of Ecuador. And it's like, for the people that don't speak uh, Spanish, it's the holy water, right? Mm-hmm. And it was this water that was like mixed with botanicals um, and, you know, it was eight botanicals and it came from this valley called Vilcabamba. That's known as the Valley of Longevity. It's a blue zone. It's right mm-hmm. under the equator between the Amazon and the Andes. There's many centenarians there. They accredit their longevity, you know, to this beverage. And the urban legend is for every day you drink this, you live a day longer. So I'm like, shit, we got the fountain of youth from the middle of the world. It's hot. You know, wow. and, you know, the the special sauce of the beverage was the botanicals and the way that that they're farmed. And it comes from this indigenous female farmer network down there that they've been farming these these herbs and flowers for 500 plus years. And this is how they make a means. Um, so, you know, we started to do some more due diligence on it and see what how can this be transcribed to the American market? You know, and then 2019, we like set it all up and we we're going to launch March of 2020. Obviously, pandemic hit, you know, global shutdown, blah, blah, blah. So we ended up like soft launching a few months later, just in like stores in LA and this, that, and the other. And and then in that first year and a half, we really kept it small. We tried to understand like, what do consumers want? What do they like about the brand? What do they like about like the, the juice itself? You know, what was, what is the communication that we're pushing, et cetera, et cetera. So our final version of our product, is three gram of sugar, 20 calorie. We use real sugar. We actually use panela. So mm-hmm. for people that are South American, panela is raw, unprocessed, unrefined sugar. If you're from Central America or Mexico and the Caribbean, they call it piloncillo. Um, so I'm sure we've all been to Latin America at some point in our lives. And like, you know, it's these like brown blocks of sugar that has antioxidants, contains vitamins, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we use that as our sweetener. That's why like chicky, if you taste it, it's very natural. Um, we, we, um, and that's it. That That's the majority, you know, 96% of the beverage outside of wow. water itself is these, these, these botanicals and it's certified organic shelf stable. Depending on the retailer, we retail between 198 to 269, 289. So it's a very accessible price point. Um, so fast forward, you know, we saw what consumers really gravitated towards. We saw what they liked. Um, and yeah, and we, um, and, you know, we've obviously tweaked and tinkered with the brand a bit, but, you know, for us, you know, now I feel that it, it's ready. And now it's like going into 3000 plus stores by the month of April. We're, you know, if you're in Florida, you can find us at Walmart's. We're launching in GoPuff next month. Um, we're going to be in CVS nationwide in like six weeks, um, in the month of April as well. We're also in giant. We sell in the air one stores in LA fresh time in the Midwest. We're in all the dash marts, which are part of DoorDash in California and soon in Washington. So all in all, like 3000 plus stores, a lot of, you know, great independent natural stores and food service accounts. So, yeah. And, you know, for me, Mm -hmm. what's important is to try to figure out how we keep defining and engaging with our consumer, which for us, it's the, the Latina millennial Gen Zer, um, cause we believe that she is our brand evangelist and she is going mm-hmm. to, you know, tell mm-hmm. our gospel better that, than anyone else. And that is what's occurring on social media. That is who is engaging with, you know, I think that most of our consumers I'd say are non-Latin, but the mm-hmm. ones that talk about it and tell, call it 10, 20 of their friends are Latin. Um, mm-hmm. so for us, it's like, we're delivering that sauce. To, you know, wh- when I talk to buyers, I tell them, think about like the shelf because we sit in the enhanced water space, which is like vitamin water, buy, lemon perfect, electrolyte, 
um, Roar, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Those guys are like, call it Drake, Harry Styles, blah, 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 right? I'm Bad Bunny, okay? Yeah, yeah. Think about it like that. And our brand is very differentiated. You know, our slogan is reggaeton in a bottle. Starting mm-hmm. in the month of April, it's going to be on the front of pack. Right now, it's on the on the side of the pack, mm-hmm. right? This is the front. So we made yeah, some small yeah. tweaks to it. So in the month of April, you're going to see this redesigned a little bit. And then on the front, you know, again, we're learning quickly as we go into more retailers. We're seeing what people are engaging with. And more importantly, we're refining our message. It's still this. It's always been the same message. It's just about how do you communicate it, you know? And remember, like, you have a split second to convince the consumer to buy your product. Mm -hmm. So whatever is on this this front better be hot. Because if I can't catch you in that one second, I may not catch you and you may not give me another shot, you know? Powerful, man. A lot of great stuff. Um, We're coming to the top of the hour, man. It's it's been a pleasure talking to you about your brand. Um, I'm curious. I mean, you're in so many different retailers. One of the last questions I want to ask you, what what is the next thing? Like, I mean, do you want to continue to get into more stores? Like, what's the ceiling for a product like this? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the universe of stores in America alone is in the hundreds of thousands, you know, so we're not even at 1% of, you know, our, our potential success, you know, so I think to me, success is defined as being a ubiquitous brand that means something to a lot of people. Um, It doesn't need to be a lot size wise, just meaning to the right, to the right audience. And that it's something that, you know, mi gente can be proud of Mm -hmm. and that they can, you know, say that it's theirs and that they feel proud of how we source the product. You know, like I didn't even go into like how we farm our botanicals. We have our own 40 acre farm down in Ecuador. We're farming things in a regenerative manner all organic um you know we 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 create our own composting and fertilizer we use 19 functional mushrooms this is what we feed Mm. we're feeding caviar basically to our soil because soil is oil and soil health is so important 40 percent of climate change is impacted by by soil quality so Mm. you know our botanicals are the creme de la creme de la creme um in the botanical kind of ecosphere. Um, So, you know, like those are things that we want you to be proud of and we want you to be engaged with. And, you know, we want you to be able to find out more information and we want to be as transparent as possible about, you know, where your products come from. So by next year, you'll be able to scan the QR code and see the day that those botanicals were planted and harvested and the pictures of the farmer all through blockchain and tracked. Um, So, yeah, so, you know, we're working on a lot of things that, you know, that that's on the, on the impact side. There's mm-hmm. also a lot of great things that are happening more on like the brand forward facing reggaeton, he, 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 ha, ha, ha side. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a constant, uh, yeah. evolution and innovation and just trying the best, you know? Yeah. I love it. Love it. Very inspiring. Very inspiring. Uh, where can people reach out to you if they want more information about you, the product, man, I feel like we might have to get a part two because I, <laughs> a lot, I can go really deep with you, man, but uh, where can people reach out to you and where can people um, find the product? If, you mentioned a couple of different stores, but talk to the people. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Andres Izquierda. Uh, Andres, like A-N-D-R-E-S, Izquierda. Easiest way to remember how to spell it because I've battled this my whole life is I-Z, quiet, A, Izquierda. Um, yeah, just DM me. Um, and uh, yeah, and then for Chiki, it's Drink Chiki, C-H-I-K-I, on all the platforms. Um, and what we'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll have a 25% off code for your, for, for your audience. So just type in Latin wealth on the, yep. on the code and right. that'll be, that'll be active as of, uh, by the time this is live, yeah. it'll be active. Yeah. I appreciate that. This will be live, uh, three twenty four. Oh, th- this code will be live in an hour. So it's okay. Okay. So it'll be there for a while. <laughs> Uh, yeah. cool. Who is one person that needs to be on the Latin wealth podcast? One Latino that you feel like that needs to be on this platform. Dude, I got a lot. <laughs> you um, got a list. Yeah. I got a long list. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's name, let's name one and then you can send the list. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, big shout out to my friend, Lex Borrero. He's, okay. um, he's actually an investor in Chiqui. He's a friend of mine. He's a 
pioneer and and an innovator in in the Latin music space. He's the founder, co-founder of Neon 16. Mm-hmm. Um, he's someone that's really inspiring, super visionary. What he's doing, and he, he's done a great job emerging culture mm-hmm. and community. That's why you know when he decided to invest in Chiki, I was super excited because we. I feel like we share a lot of the same mm-hmm. ideas in terms of like how the culture should be progressing. Mm-hmm. Love that. Love that. Definitely would love to connect with him. Uh, with that, yeah, being I got said, you. With that being said, man, thank you once again for your time. Thank you for coming on here and, you know, giving us a breakdown and everything it means the world to us. And with that being said, it's your boy, Chris. We'll catch you guys next week on the next episode. Peace. Muchas gracias. Chiqui, chiqui, boom, boom.